0: So, gentlemen, thanks for joining us today on Leadership Log, which is a podcast for the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center community on topics of interest. And the topic of interest today is learning about the F-15 as we get ready to celebrate the 50th anniversary of that uh, amazing platform. Uh, so, we've got two experts um, on the F-15 with us today. Um, so, Sherlock, if you could start, um, give us a introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your career background.
1: Sure. Uh, Greg Watson, my call sign, as he said, was Sherlock, um, started out in the Air Force Commission in 1985, flew the F-4 for a tour, uh, and then came to the F-15 community in 1994. Uh, Flew operational for a tour, uh, built airplanes at Boeing for about six years, and then came to the program office. Uh, I've got about 2,000 fighter hours, uh, the majority of that in F-15Es. Okay. All right and B.J.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm uh, Craig B.J. Honeycutt. I was commissioned in 1988. I started in uh, F-111s, transitioned to F-15Es after my exchange tour in Australia in 1996 and spent the next 14 years flying F-15Es out of Seymour. I ended up with just uh, right around 3,500 hours total, and then I transitioned to, you know, my next life and. Supported the F-15 through SAFI-A as part of the F-15 SA program for the Saudis. And now I support the Air National Guard with their F-15C's at the SPO at Robbins. Okay. All right. <clears throat>
0: uh, so, and Sherlock, could you t- did you mention, what, what do you do now? Where do you work now?
1: I work on the F-15EX program. I'm the fielding manager responsible for uh, betting down the first squadron of airplanes uh, out in the Oregon Air National Guard. Okay. All
2: right. And there I, goes. you know, I actually help out Sherlock with the EX as well, because being the guard rep at the SPO I've and the guards meant to get the, uh, first batch of non-test aircraft. So I've been helping Sherlock out with that as well. All right. Good
0: deal. Uh, so a- as I mentioned, we're getting ready to celebrate the 15th anniversary of the F-15, um, can you guys uh, tell us a little bit about the, about the anniversary, about the ceremony that's gonna, or what kind of special events we might have planned? Uh, Sherlock, we'll start with you.
1: Okay, yeah, I mean, the, we're reaching a real milestone in the life cycle of the airplane. So 50 years since the first flight of the F-15. Now the F-15 program was around for five years before that, uh, but July 27th, 1972 out at Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, First flight uh, by Boeing or McDonnell Douglas test pilot Irv Burroughs, um, marking the beginning of really the uh, the Air Force's association uh, with the F-15. What we're doing in order to celebrate the 50th anniversary on July 27th, there will be a celebration at the Boeing plant in St. Louis, where the first airplane and all subsequent F-15s for the USAF have been built. Then on July 28, here at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, we'll have a static display with one of the F-15EXs and an older F-15C, kind of showing the the full life cycle of the airplane, uh, from the oldest version we have flying to the newest version we have flying. Mm -hmm. We have retired Colonel Cesar Rodriguez coming in as our guest speaker. Cesar Rodriguez is significant in that Uh, He has the most MIG kills since the Vietnam War. He shot down two MIGs during the Gulf War in 1991 and another one over Kosovo in uh, 1998. Um, We'll then transition into a group of former SPO members uh, that have an association called the Gathering of Eagles. They meet periodically, usually every three years uh, here in Dayton. Um, Most of them are... uh, you know, some of the original SPO members from back in 1972, 73. Um, so they're getting pretty old, but we wanna take time to celebrate the achievement that they did. And then that everyone else, all the thousands of people who've been involved in the F-15 in the subsequent 50 years. All right. <clears throat> and we should mention it. you're,
0: you're uh, stationed here, right, Pat? Um, but BJ, you are at Robbins. So, is there anything uh, different happening at Robbins to celebrate the anniversary?
2: Most of the activity is centered up at Wright Pat. You know, obviously the SPO down here uh, does all this the sustainment side. And, you know, our claim to fame, if you will, is the tail out front of the SPO building here has 727 as the uh, tail number painted on it. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it kind of reminds you every day when you walk in the door, the legacy in the lifetime of the aircraft and the impact it's had on, you know, national security and everything. It's been, uh, of late, especially the strike Eagle, it's been a very critical part of the national defense strategy from its inception. And, you know, even now, occasionally they'll, you know, the guard guys will go after bears over the Atlantic or the uh, Bering sea and the strike Eagle certainly are heavily tasked, even though we're in a relatively quiet period of time right now.
0: Right. Uh, So let's go back and talk a little bit about the origin story, of the aircraft, how it came, how it came to be and how it how it became kind of the mainstay of American air superiority for the past really five decades. Um, And and we'll start with you, Sherlock.
1: Yeah. Again, I was a child whenever most of this was happening. Um, (laughs) So. Uh, I get this from the histories, and it's an amazing history. Um, the, F, the Air Force went through a series of fighter acquisitions in the Century Series, back from the F-100 to the F-106, where we put out a new fighter every couple of years. In the McNamara era, uh, in the pursuit of efficiency, both the Navy and the Air Force were wedged into the F-4 as the principal air-to-air fighter, uh, for both commands, so the F four becomes the workhorse of Vietnam, a great airplane, but with uh, some shortcomings and not designed with the the latest technology. Uh, if some of the listeners are familiar with John Boyd and the theory of energy maneuverability, that had never been built into a fighter aircraft before, and the the fighter mafia, the group of people that drove the design and the requirements at the Pentagon at the time uh, said, let's build something revolutionary. And that revolutionary thing is the F-15. It was designed with energy maneuverability in mind with the most power we could put on an airplane, two Pratt & Whitney F-100 engines at the top of their game uh, with the biggest radar that we could put on a uh, uh, air-to-air fighter in the APG-63 out of Hughes, which later become uh, Raytheon um, along with a conventional 20 millimeter gun and as many missiles as we could carry, uh, which was, you know, AIM-7s and AIM-9s back in the day, but we could carry eight air-to-air missiles. Um, We could fly further, we could fly faster, we could fly longer than any other fighter out there. And it really was revolutionary in the ability to, have and to dominate the skies. Uh, we were able to have air supremacy with this. And uh, we're filming this about a month before the anniversary, but yesterday, June 24th, is the anniversary of the first F-15 shootdown. So June 24th, 1979, the Israelis flying F-15As shot down three Syrian MiGs, starting the 104 to zero record that the F-15 possesses, uh, unrivaled by any Uh, current fighter yeah yeah that
0: that is amazing the fact it's it's never been never been tackled in in the field is is just incredible to think about uh especially when you think about 50 years 50 years it's been flying right so uh bj what about you uh what do you what do you what do you have to offer about the origin story of the f-15 well
2: sherlock covered the origin story pretty well but you know in addition to being revolutionary the jet has been very evolutionary as well. you know. While you know, Sherlock's a lot older than I am. I still remember, you know, the computers in the aircraft being analog. You spin dials just like the old school uh, speedometers and things like that to make the computers do what they do. Uh, but the aircraft has transitioned from those to digital computers. Uh, the jet has transitioned to having GPS when it didn't have GPS originally. <clears throat> you know, it's transitioned to uh, screens with uh, dials and knobs from screens with push buttons. Now we're up to touch screens. So everything that the we as you know humans in society have kind of grown through the aircraft has as well. And I, I saw that initially both from inside the cockpit when we would get new software updates or hardware widgets installed. And seeing that from the spo side where you're developing it and testing it and putting it on contract and fielding it and publishing the tctos and tos you know it it oftentimes as an air crew you get frustrated with the speed of advance but then when you see all the machinations that go on behind the scenes it's uh, uh you know it can be kind of depressing at times but it's certainly eye watering uh, but seeing both sides of the evolution of the aircraft has actually been quite interesting and it, you know, if you look at, and it's not peculiar to the F-15, I'll grant you that, the, air, the evolution of aircraft over the last five decades, the lifespan of the airplane has been pretty impressive.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's explore that a little bit. Um, so you, you mentioned that the F-15EX is, is rolling off the line now as we, as we talk, okay? Uh, so 50 years later, we're still acquiring, the Air Force is still acquiring, F- or once again acquiring F-15s, But this is a remarkably different aircraft than the one that rolled off the line, the F-15 A's and B's uh, back in the early 70s. Is is that correct? So, uh, Sherlock, walk us through some of the things that have changed.
1: Well, we took the most powerful engines on the airplane that we had available to the airplane in 1972. And now we take the most powerful engines that we have available to us, 29,000 pounds of thrust times two engines on the GE129. Uh, we take uh, the first look down shoot down radar in the ABG 63, and we evolve that to the APG 82, which is the most advanced fighter aircraft available in the world. Uh, we take the original uh, central computer which was the AP-1R originally developed on the Gemini space program in the mid 1960s, best available in 1972, and we grow it to the cp 2 um, So. Uh, the original computer probably has less processing power than a pocket calculator. Um, the current one has 32 Pentium 4 cores capable of running a million lines of code and you know, hot enough that it burns like an 800-watt light bulb, requiring a lot of cooling on the airplane. Uh, the original sensors to the airplane beyond the radar were pretty limited. Uh, as we evolved through the Strike Eagle, we added I, an IR system in Lantern, We're now to the sniper and the infrared search and track system. So our sensors have gotten better, our engines have gotten better, our computers have gotten better. We've evolved from the AIM-9 Lima and the AIM-7F to the AIM-120D with other missiles in the wings waiting to come on board the airplane. Um, We fly further, faster than anything that even is the original design with the additional conformal fuel tanks. Um, The F-15 has the versatility to take on just about any capability that we could add to a fighter aircraft. Uh, The one drawback being it's not stealthy, but uh, it makes up for that in a lot of ways. BJ, over to you.
2: Well, you know, a lot of times you don't necessarily wanna be stealthy. You you don't necessarily want people to be you want them to die tense sometimes.
0: Uh, so if you see
2: if they see it coming a lot of times that in and of itself is good enough. Of course that's situation dependent yeah. and you know Sherlock stole all the Gucci stuff to talk about but <clears throat> the other improvements that I've seen you know being involved with the X program from the beginning are on the manufacturing side you know robots doing the work, the digital design, uh, one-piece nose barrels instead of, you know, a million pieces and, and machine or forged longerons instead of splice, you know, all that sort of stuff that I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I hear about in, you know, all the PMRs and whatnot. A lot of stuff on the manufacturing side has changed uh, with the publicized intent of, you know, lowering costs, increasing throughput, those sorts of things. And that's also a sign of the March of Times, if you will, uh all that stuff has gotten better over the last 50 years and it's nice that industry is incorporating that and trying to help the taxpayers out but you know unfortunately sherlock stole all the fun stuff to
1: talk about well i mean we could redo that section and you could talk about the fun stuff (laughs) yeah
0: well uh so let me so you both flew f15es the strike eagles um so so bj talk to us a little bit about um what happened? What changed between the, the original F-15, the A's and B's, C's and D model,
2: and, and the E when it came out? So the the biggest difference, of course, the B's and D's aside, they were two seat trainers meant to teach the pilot how to fly the A and the C respectively. The A and the C are air-to-air superiority or air-to-air dominance, depending on which time frame you were living in, uh, fighters. Their sole intent in life was to shoot down other airplanes to either protect your, you know, grocery store or to clear the skies so that we have freedom of operation on the ground. And, you know, of note, uh, U S forces have not come under air attack since the Korean war. We were so good at it. You know, we give our sea model brethren a hard time, but they are, were, and are very good at their job. Uh, so it's single seat on the employment side. Uh, So the biggest difference with the E-model is the addition of the second missionized seat in the back seat and the addition of the air to ground uh, mission set. So pretty much every ordinance that we have up to and including tactical nukes and precision guided weapons and unprecision guided weapons and some uh, of the more standoff weapons the E-model can carry and does and is frequently dropped in hostile to semi-hostile environments. They've dropped weapons in anger and, you know, in mild displeasure. And uh, the sensor suite on the E-model is facilitated to be ran from the back seat, especially the uh, targeting pod and the lasers, laser guidance. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will argue about the necessity of the second guy. But, you know, there's a video running around the Internet right now about how two skulls are better than one. And it's particularly true in the uh, troops in contact, uh, targets of opportunity, uh, non-pre-planned targeting environment. You know, when the Army guys are on the ground getting shot at and want a weapon within, you know, 60 to 90 seconds, that second guy can be the difference between them being overrun and not overrun Uh, because there's a lot of duties that can be divided And the more you offshed your workload, the quicker things get done in a synchronized environment.
1: And see, BJ, I think that's something you have a lot more experience with than I do. Because when you and I flew together in the the Chiefs, uh, we still were targeted more towards um, precision guided munitions and uh, air interdiction, the ability to go back and drop, uh, drop bridges. Uh, to prevent follow-on forces from getting to the battlefield. But while I transitioned over into acquisition and manufacturing, you were still flying, and the F-15E re-rolled itself into being the best uh, close air support airplane we had out there. Um, well, I'll say fast close air support. I don't want to get into an argument with the A-10 guys. So, yeah. you know, talk, talk about the importance of having a second seat in a close air support role.
2: Yep. And, and that's actually very true. When, <coughs> when Sherlock and I started out, we were all pre-planned targeting, uh, basically a F-111 with self-defense capabilities to oversimplify it. And that was the mission sets that we were training to. And I remember going through the schoolhouse being told that you'll never ever strafe in a $100 million airplane. Right. Uh, because you get up close and personal, people can shoot at you with, you know, little guns and not big missiles and things like that. And it exposes the aircraft and the crew to a lot more risk. Well, you know, 15 years later, post 9-11, we strafed like nobody's business. And it was very common and guys trained to it. And once you train to it, you're proficient at it. And, you know, it uh, becomes another tool in your tool bag, if you will. And, you know, the, we talked earlier about the increase. Or the evolution of the technology within the aircraft that actually facilitated a lot of this as well in uh, you know, the advent of gps uh, the better coordinates the more higher accuracy of the weapons and being able to you know use the sensors on the aircraft to look at the coordinates to make sure they actually are what you think they are as opposed to some of the other aircraft where they just type in coordinates and they never actually see what they're hitting And in some cases, that worked out poorly because they couldn't, you know, put eyes or sensors on the specific coordinates make sure it was not friendlies or was not, you know, was the intended target. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the dynamic environment, especially in, you know, post 2003 Iraq and Afghanistan, where none of it's pre-planned, that's where the second seat comes in uh, play to be very, very important. Now, that's not to downplay the importance of the sea models. You know, I support the National Guard right now, and their air defense, homeland defense mission set at the corners of the coastlines of the continental United States is very important to national security. And they, they're on alert, and uh, they, do their, they still do their jobs very well.
0: Uh, yeah, so the, those Cs and Ds, those are on patrol all the time, correct? I mean, guarding the homeland every day,
2: 24-7. The Cs, yes. The Ds, like I said before, are trainers. Uh, uh, but the Cs, you know, they've been upgraded along with the Es. Uh, they have a very good radar. You know, some of their internal mechanizations and switches are a little bit dated, and, you know, we've been working on that. Uh, on both sides of you know, Robbins and Wright Uh but the the mission continues. And you know, if you look at where the bases are located throughout the United States, they're in the critical parts of the coastline, you know, to provide homeland defense. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you bring up the
0: F-15E uh, as far as like close air support. I I don't I don't think that I've read a lot about that. You know, in recent years, you hear about obviously A-10s, and hear even about F-16s doing close air support, but, uh, um, but I, I, I hadn't heard a lot about the F-15Es. So has that been a big part of the mission, Sherlock, or?
1: Oh, well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Given the time, uh, global war on terror, first flying out of uh, Qatar, 12-hour missions into Afghanistan, then based out of Bagram, all over Afghanistan, continuing flying out of Qatar to cover the entire Iraq war, and then now supporting inherent resolve. Uh, The F-15E, I think it was three years ago, set the record for the most tonnage dropped by any squadron in the entire period of the global war on terror. Um, The amazing thing about the Strike Eagle particularly is it went to war the first year it was operational. Uh, You know, we declared operational capability in 1990 down at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base and immediately deployed the first squadron to the Gulf War. And we've never brought them all home. Mm. We've always had strike eagles deployed. We have strike eagles deployed. Um, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Southern Watch, Northern Watch, uh, Allied Force, Iraqi Freedom, Enduring Freedom. Um, inherent resolve. I don't remember the names of the operations in the Horn of Africa. I don't remember the name of the operation over Bosnia uh, back in the early 1990s. We, the F-15's always been there and, uh, and will be there for a long time.
2: Uh, mm-hmm.
1: As, you know, uh, we, uh, we have been a strong, no, we have been a really effective um, close air support platform for major land operations.
0: Yep. So uh, so l- let's move forward then to the EX, okay? So we've already talked about it's a, it's a vastly different aircraft than the original F-15s that rolled off the line. Um, so from a mission standpoint, um, it, we had the C's doing air superiority and the E's doing ground attack and close air support. The EX can do
1: all of those things. I'll let BJ answer that one. Okay.
2: BJ. Okay, so you hung up there a second on okay. my video. Right. But, uh, I think I got the gist of your question. The there is a slight tweak to the EX that the Qataris pushed. That pushed the there is a couple of things in the E model that you could only do from the back seat, and they've moved those functionality. Uh, to the front seats in both, but it's in the front seat as well. So now the EX can be completely flown uh, single seat. <clears throat> and the requirement at the moment is for the EX to be a C model replacement, air superiority, air dominance, homeland defense kind of fighter. The aircraft itself will do all of the above. It'll do air to ground, it'll do air to air, it'll, it can be a a Strike Eagle or it can be a C model, and it depends on how you crew it and how you equip it. Uh, obviously, whether you put conformal fuel tanks on, it will determine on whether you can carry air-to-ground munitions on the CFTs or whether, but you, even without CFTs, you can put air-to-ground munitions on the pylons, the hard points, or you can just go with your standard vanilla air-to-air load with uh, AIM-120 AMRAMS and AIM-9. X sidewinders so the aircraft itself is going to be in all of the above aircraft by design. It's up to the Air Force to decide what mission they want it to perform and then man it and equip it appropriately to fit that mission, but rolling off the line, you know, once all the uh, related supporting programs like EPAWS and these uh, OFP suites catch up, it will do all of the above, and it's designed to do that. Uh, so with the, pro- uh, you know, i re- repeating myself so you can delete that out, but with the yeah. uh, the proper equipment and the proper crewing, it can do whatever you want it to do.
1: And which, uh,
0: you know, in LCMC, we always talk about delivering capabilities <clears throat> to warfighters. So this just, this just gives the warfighter Options. I mean, you can do all kinds of things with this this one platform. Um, is that correct, Sherlock? Or?
1: That is, and uh, you know, another thing that we have in the F15EX because of we're leveraging the technology. Because the F15, when we stopped buying them in 2004, the technology continued to progress, and every FMS customer has advanced the design. The Saudis made a big advance in design whenever they took us to fly by wire. That dropped a lot of the weight out of the airplane and enabled us to do some different things. So an F-15EX is an even more capable air-to-air fighter than the C model it replaces, not just for the electronics, but it carries more missiles. Uh, I don't know, BJ, what's the maximum number of missiles we can carry? I think 12 is the standard load, but I think if we put, you know... um, different rails on the airplanes. I think we can get up to like 16 missiles.
2: With the standard U.S. Uh, pylon configuration, 12 is the max. If you went to, there are options that we haven't bought that would expand that to 16 or 20.
1: Very good. So an absolute missile truck <laughs> with, with 12 missiles on board, you know, you know eight A-120Ds and 2 aim A-9Xs. Uh, This is a very formidable aircraft, and that's without talking about, you know, HACM or um, the uh, JATAM or some of the other missiles that are under development that the F-15EX is uniquely capable of carrying because they're outsized munitions. Um, Something much bigger than an an F-35 or an F-22 can carry and still be able to maintain their LO platform. Right. Right. So
0: let's uh, let's let's take that step forward then. So what what is coming in the future for the F-15s? We know the EX is is coming down the line right now. But what do you see in the future five
2: years from now or or even even further out? Uh, BJ, we'll go to you. Well, the obvious one is the hackam like uh, Sherlock mentioned, and that's the hypersonic missile. Uh, it mm-hmm. will be outsized, so it'll be limited on what it can on what platforms can carry it kind of like the GB-28 in the days of yore, the big 5,000-pound bunker buster. It was so large that only a few aircraft could carry it. <clears throat> the hypersonic missile will be the same way, uh, at least initially. And uh, some of the other, he mentioned JATAM, uh, even some of the current missiles like a JASM will be more prevalent, if you will, on a F-15 than they would be on, say, an F-35. Uh, just due to the once you start hanging stuff like that on a low observable aircraft, it's no longer a low observable. And, you know, so it's kind of the piece of the puzzle that the F-15 is already in. So you may as well use it. And then, you know, there's even, I've looked at some plans for direct energy weapons, hanging on some of the uh, wing pylons and things like that. Obviously that's a little further in the future, but given the size and the, carriage capabilities of the F-15, you have a lot of flexibility to employ some of the stuff that's on the cusp of, you know, being released and operational, and you also have the opportunity to test some of this stuff that's, you know, a little more on the theoretical side, but within the realm of possible. Yep. So, so sure.
1: go ahead, Charlie. One ability that we're really excited about is the OMS processor. So it's an auxiliary processor that lives inside the airplane. Um, It's in the design phases now, but the idea is that we bring something to the airplane that will give us um, so much more added capability in terms of sensor fusion and the ability to control um, other aircraft from the backseat of an F-15EX. This could be what makes the EX the mothership for a a drone swarm, or the ability to employ uh, the UCAV, what used to be called the X-45, which now has morphed into the Valkyrie or the Loyal Wingman. Um, The OMS processor takes us into the realm of R2D2, into the realm of uh, artificial intelligence and the ability to lessen the workload on the aircrew but make them even better at what they do.
0: So um, so what's the likelihood that we're going to one day celebrate maybe the 70th anniversary of the F-15 or maybe the 75th anniversary of the F-15?
1: You know, I hate to speculate. We've got, what is it? I think a 20,000 hour uh, service life on the airframe. Uh, so the, the EXs that are rolling off the line now will surely outlive all three of us, uh, whether the Air Force continues to support it that long, uh, I have no idea. You know, we, we could be a mainstay of the future or we could be a transition uh, as we move to things like NGAD. But like the B-52, the F-15 is a classic design. And there's always a place for a multi-tool in your toolbox. There's always a place for a swiss army knife and the fact that we can do so many different missions uh, and do them so well i believe the f-15 has a has a place in our arsenal for at least another 25 years all
0: right uh, so gentlemen this pretty much brings us to the end of our time but before we close i want to see is there anything that i forgot to ask you about or anything that you'd like to uh, reiterate uh, and we'll go to bj first
2: No, I think we've covered everything that uh, springs to my mind and, you know, I appreciate the time.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. And uh, one thing I will say is I've enjoyed the airplane from the day I started flying it. It was my goal to fly it when I was in college, getting ready to go to OTS. Uh, Obviously, well, yeah, they weren't available when I graduated uh, flight school. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I had a little transition period, but uh, the F-15, Yeah, has a warm spot in my heart, if you will. Yeah. And Sherlock, do you?
1: Yeah, just circling back around to the 50th anniversary. um, There have been thousands, tens of thousands, possibly even hundreds of thousands of people across that 50 years who've supported this platform and this capability. And a lot of times people um, wonder about the significance of what they do in their lives, you know, whether they're you know, working, for a, working for a company or um, you know, pursuing a better life for themselves. But those of us who've touched the F-15 know that what we've done is significant. This has you know, been at the, the fighting edge of uh, the war to maintain democratic values around the world. It's protected us. It's protected other, other our troops on the ground and people in other countries. Um, the work that we've done in the design, in the production, in the sustainment, in the improvement uh, of this airplane, um, it really is uh, just a testament to the people who've uh, devoted themselves to it and proud to be a part of it.
2: Yeah, let me piggyback on that for a second. Uh, you know, having been on both sides of the equation, if you will, I, I can say with, you know, a fair amount of certainty that your average air crew has no idea what goes on behind the scenes to make sure that the airplane uh, has supply parts and tech order updates and this, that, and the other, so that when they walk out, it's FMC and ready to fly. Which is not always the case, but uh, the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes at the SPO, at the depot, is actually you know, almost unbelievable. And I can tell you, like I said, with a fair bit of certainty, that your average aircrew crew is completely unaware. Uh, so, uh, and the work that's done behind the scenes is definitely needs to be appreciated by everybody. Yeah. Yeah.
0: An aircraft doesn't rack up the number of hours that the F-15 has without a whole lot of support coming from the back end. Absolutely. Yep. All right, gentlemen. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today on Leadership Log and helping us understand a little bit more about this venerable aircraft. Uh, and uh, yeah, we really appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you. Have a good day. CBJ. Thanks, hey, Charlie. All right.